Thank you so very much for liking wrestling documentaries enough to download the 47th edition of Scoring at the Movies. Or maybe subscribe to us and didn't mean to download this one. We delve into the blood and guts of sports films every other Thursday. We also spoil every other Thursday. I am the world's most polite podcaster, Ryan Ellis. And here's the guy who loves to pop a crowd and quote Shakespeare while gushing blood, Lord Chris DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. And I'd like to think that when you say we spoil every other Thursday, it's nothing to do with the movies itself. We just ruin people's day by the sheer attempt at making a podcast. Is Dual meaning. It? Yeah, yeah I, I like it. it. That's good. Plus, you're Spike Dudley in this analogy, incidentally. Yeah, I got that. The failed English teacher slash wannabe wrestler who likes to quote Shakespeare. Got a little famous as a wrestler, that guy did, too. Did he really? Through his eloquence and well-spokenness? Through the Dudley boys. He was one of them. <laughs> By the way, this is our second shot at this one. We've had to do this before. Field of Dreams. I just didn't record it properly. This time, the new setup, there was an echo and a bad one on me, and even Chris had a bit of an echo. So we're doing this again. We're almost becoming a professional with these two microphones and the pop screens and everything on there, but clearly the kinks have not been fully ironed. We're going to hope to recapture the magic of a few days ago. If it was magical, I don't even know. <laughs> you should have just played off the echo as being our failed attempt at some sort of ambient sound effects, a Mickey Mantle-esque address to the Yankee faithful before his... You mean his... Lou Gehrig? Lou Gehrig, sorry. I, I, I. Mm. Consider myself. Myself, myself. Well, like Bev and I said when we were listening to it, at first I thought, I guess we can live with this for one episode, but I thought the only reason that people live with another podcast is because it's live and you can't redo it or the guests can't come back, but you could come back, so... This is four days later, and we're giving it another try. Yeah, except I mentally purge every movie that we ever talk about <laughs> the second we record a podcast. So beyond so... the what? Wait, what's a mat? Uh-oh. Yeah, this is going to be problematic. Well, let's I'm get sure. that beer open. What are you drinking over the, there? The talent juice. This is a little bit of an homage to the heel turns of wrestlers, particularly at Royal Rumbles or those main event things, the Sucker Punch IPA. Kind of like old Rocky there, Dwayne Johnson to Mick Foley. Multiple sucker punch with a chair to the face moment for poor Mick in that one. But Can you score at this movie with The Rock in it? You still can... no. He helps. Colette Foley certainly helps. Sable, we see her a little bit, helps. But still no, not this movie. Not even Dwayne Johnson's inherent sexiness can rescue the movie from Mick Foley's Let's say anti-sexiness and, and Terry Funk's and, and the Jake underlying Roberts, yeah, sad, and sad the life. dark shit in this movie too, the yeah. content itself. I was going to say, once again, just like we recorded this, like you said before, and at that point, I thanked you for providing me the piss bucket in the corner that I requested before we record every episode. That that's is, in your rider. That's the one request in my rider is to have an open piss bucket in the Brown corner. Brown M&Ms you used to want. Don't care about that so much anymore. No, I've moved on to bigger and better things now. Yeah, That will forever, I think, stick with me as the saddest single image in this whole movie is Jake Roberts. How many dozens of people are just milling around that open space getting ready for this independent show? Gotta be some women, too. For sure. But he also knows there's a film crew recording him, and yep. he's still just like, yeah, I gotta take a leak. We have fallen so low that there's not even a freaking Johnny on the spot outside, I guess. So there just... might be, and he doesn't care to bother to go to it. Maybe, maybe that... it's 10 feet away, and he said, I don't fucking care. It's right here. That's even sadder in some respects, too. Yeah. 
you have so little self-respect that you just whip it out, take a leak in the corner while a documentarian's filming you. All right, let's do this thing, guys. That's his nutshell of this movie. Terry Funk's nutshell is when he's in bed and can barely get up. Yeah. And I guess McFoley's nutshell, there's a lot of them, but when he's being bandaged up after getting his brains bashed in and trying to placate his family, even though he's the one that probably should be in the hospital. When he's walking out of that Royal... Was it a Royal Rumble? He Royal fought, Rumble, yeah. yeah. Why, in the name of all is good and holy, does he have his two young kids, both of whom appear to be under the age of, what, seven, would you say? Both? The daughter, certainly. His son, I don't know, maybe Probably seven? six or so, six. yeah. Even though we know the match with The Rock didn't go quite as planned, it went a little bit further than Mick had anticipated, he still knew he was going to get his ass handed to him. He was going to get cut. He was... It was supposed to be five chair shots originally, which is yeah. still a lot of bashing of your father's head to have to witness. He's probably going to bleed. He knows that too. And you want your young kids watching blood streaming. Any head wound bleeds a lot, right? Yeah. We know that however severe it might be. And in his case, they were not great. So watching him walk out of the match with his kids in tow, just saying... Are you upset you saw daddy get hurt? And they're like, yeah, no kidding, man. It looked like you were getting murdered to a young kid out there. You're still covered head to toe in your own blood. And you're trying to placate daddy's okay, daddy's okay, as you're getting your head stitched up. And it was only about eight months before that he did, or maybe less than that, maybe six months before, that he did the Hell in the Cell match where the Undertaker threw him off and right. then he went through. And I don't know if they saw that live. I think they did, actually, because I've read all of his books multiple times, and I feel like he said that Colette called him the night of the Hell in the Cell and said, Mickey, you can't keep doing this to us. Yeah. So why would you say that unless she actually saw what happened? I think that was a line in this movie, actually, where Colette was talking about the worst experience she's ever had watching Mick fight. I think she had indicated the kids were also watching it. They all saw this happen to him live, not in person, but live. And like you said... On pay-per-view, yeah. Yeah, and then she called and said, we can't do this anymore. And Mick has, I think, all the rational reasons in the world why somebody would put themselves through the things he did as far as motivations go. He's not one of these huge dudes who get to a point... He's huge, but he's not a muscular huge. A lot of these guys, The Rock included, frankly... Failed football players? Failed football players. They get out of collegiate sport. They want to make it in the professional circuit. Maybe they don't have the education or the intelligence to make it anywhere else. And once the pro football or whatever career doesn't work out, all right, well, maybe I'll try wrestling because I'm just a physically big person and I can look the part. I'm probably tough. Listen, if you're aiming to be a pro football player, you can take some punishment. You know that. But Mick isn't like that. He's a guy that always wanted to be a wrestler. That's acknowledged in the movie. But you listen to him speak, you realize the man's certainly intelligent enough that he could have other professional avenues. The documentarian asks him that question, what next once you retire from wrestling? And he's like, well, I have no clue, essentially. But, of course, we've seen him, subsequent to his retirement, do other things, commentary. Stand-up uh, comedy. He tried that. Stand-up comedy. And then a lot of these wrestlers will go on the speaking tour, and they make, I don't know how much it is, but pretty good bank on that. And a lot yeah. of the guys that aren't as big of a star, not that he's the biggest star, but he's up there, they do well, too. Enough, yeah. And, of course, signings, and you go to WrestleMania, whether you're an active competitor or not. He was the commissioner for a while after he retired. Yeah. He comes back for matches. He did retire. What, the year after this, about 2000, 13 months later, he had these matches with The Rock in late 98 into 1999, which is when the Royal Rumble was. Yeah. And the next year, he got back to the top of the card again. He's up against Triple H and had some brutal matches, but much safer brutal matches. And then he retired. He wrestled in WrestleMania about six weeks later, but he really did mostly stay away. He's wrestled plenty. Yeah. He hasn't been the Steve Austin, Shawn Michaels, who said, I'm retiring, although Shawn Michaels has wrestled again since. But Steve Austin never has since 2003, so... Foley's gone back on that a little bit, but he mostly stayed away, and he was only in his mid-30s when he retired, but then his body's so ravaged, as I knew anyway, and you could see enough of that in this movie to think, good move, dude, and he still, even though he got out of it before a lot of guys ever do, 
he has cognitive problems. He was telling Vince oh, McMahon yeah. that, and Vince McMahon said around this time of when this movie is shown, not taking place, because they shot it over about five years, I think it was, or three years. About three, I Maybe think, that was yeah. three, I guess. And then Barry Blaustein, the director and the writer, who actually wrote for Eddie Murphy a lot, Coming to America, he wrote that. He wrote the Nutty Professor film. So he had a huge career before he ever became a wrestling documentarian. But I think yeah. he was on the road shooting for something like three, but the film itself took maybe five in total. But Probably. at the end, obviously, it's taking place in early 99. And somewhere in there, Vince McMahon had a conversation with Foley, and he said, I don't always remember where I live when I drive home. You're done. You're not wrestling anymore. But then he did have more matches. Maybe that was late 99, actually, because then he worked the program with Hunter, and then that was it. You do see the scene in this movie where, again, I always get this director's name wrong because I want to call him Blomfield. Or Barry Blaustein. Blaustein. He gets a voicemail from Mick, right, at one point where he's referring to himself as Cactus Jack in the hospital after a match. You know, he's getting stitched up, and he's clearly not clear where he is specifically. And yeah, he suffered some kind of probably lifelong trauma as a result of his career, which I think not only in the sport can you expect, but in his particular way of going about the sport. He's not the pretty boy. He's not the monster of a body. Not a very good athlete at all either. He doesn't have that athlete's body, but he's clearly got enough athleticism. There's different body types, we should say. I have a body type like him. One of the reasons why I worship the guy. Yeah. He's so much like me. And when you're He doesn't belong as a star with a physique like he has and looks like he has, and he fucking knows it too. But he does it through charisma like a lot of Mm -hmm. these guys do. The Rock is his polar opposite in almost every way, other than they're both great. They're both at selling by using the microphone for promos. And they're That's both the one thing they share, really truly. Yeah, and I think what little I know of both men, nice is guys. That they're both legitimately yep. nice guys. Even though The Rock at times didn't come across that way in this movie necessarily. But behind the but scenes, like, he seems like he always is, yeah. including his movie career. Now, despite his huge stardom in both wrestling and now as a Hollywood star, it doesn't seem like he's an asshole. No, exactly. It doesn't seem and, to have that kind of vibe that so many big stars can have. And that actually, I think, frames what I wanted to point out before we got on this little tangent about Mick, is that he is one of the rare cases of somebody that was able to explicitly state what he was doing, why he was doing it, what his goals were, and what his exit plan was. I'm doing this specifically so I can make enough money to retire at 35, so I can spend as much time as possible with my children and, and have my two family. more kids, as it turned out. Yeah, and to his credit, it sounds like whether or not that retirement date was changed because of trauma he sustained. Maybe he thought he'd be doing it another year or two longer. Still, he got out relatively healthy with enough money that he seems to have been able to live the last 20 years the way he wanted to with his kids and to have more kids and expand his family. And good on him because there's not a lot of guys that can do that, as we see also in this movie. Well, wrestlers are addicted to the spotlight. That's one thing I really picked up on. Of course, I've seen this movie four, maybe even five times. And if you just watch wrestling, you can gather that. And I don't mean just wrestlers. Rock stars, live actors, not movie actors so much because they're not doing it in front of, well, they're doing it in front of people, but it's different when you're doing it on a set versus if you're on a stage. But I can see how people that do this kind of thing for a living, like it's late night talk show hosts, the show's recorded, but they do it live. You get addicted to that buzz. And wrestlers may be more than most because of the reaction they get. And that's tens of thousands of people when you have a really big show. The other people I just mentioned, other than the rock stars... And I guess other supposed real athletes, but that's not usually for them. It's for a mm. team, unless you're a tennis player, maybe. Or you're LeBron or something like that. You're so big, you've transcended the team. I suppose, or Michael Jordan, too. Yeah. But you're still playing on a team. But as a wrestler, yeah. it's for you individually. And I can see why Foley and Funk oh, yeah. and Jake the Snake don't get out for that reason, too. Terry Funk, I looked online, it said that he finally retired when he was 70. And that was not that long ago, maybe five years ago. He was supposed to be retiring. It would have been 97. Supposed to be his last match against Bret Hart. He was still with the WWF. That was almost 20 years before he supposedly really retired. I think he actually finally did. But there you go. It wasn't like it was three, four, five more years. It was almost two decades before he finally gave it up. And his body is fucked up when we see him in this movie. 
it's one of the sad things about this whole thing. I've already mentioned that the saddest was Jake the Snake pissing into a bucket in the corner. Maybe a close second to that. This is one of those rare movies, being a documentary and being the type of documentary it is, to just reiterate the director's sort of mission statement in it. And he says it very clearly at the beginning. He's a successful screenwriter as an adult, but he's always been a lifelong wrestling fan. He did this to answer who are these guys? And why do they do this? And why do they do what they do? There's a lot of personalities we see come and go through the movie, but of course the three that they focus on are the three that we touched on, Mick Foley, Terry Funk, and of course Jake the Snake. Terry's an interesting case. He's kind of like the middle ground between Jake and Mick, right? Yes. He's, he's had his highlights. He's currently in a bit of a low period of his career when we find him in this movie, like you said, in about 1997. And he's physically beaten down. At this point, he's in his 50s, right? In 97? And like Mick, he was an extreme wrestler. King guy. of the death match over in Japan, the two of them fought right. these nuts to matches. I wish they hadn't done it for a few reasons. Oh, and yeah, one of them course. is for their sake, for of their course. Sake. It's too bad they had to do that because they're such charismatic people, especially Mick, but Terry Funk is good as a promo guy, which means when you use the microphone and you speak, which, of course, The Rock might be mm-hmm. the best ever. Roddy Piper is certainly in that class, too. Well, Jake the Snake had a talent for it, too, right? Which well, exactly. Sure we'll the complete opposite of, say, a Hulk Hogan. Jake yeah. the Snake did the thing where, I'm going to talk really quiet and draw you in versus, well, you know something, brother? But Jake the Snake was just the opposite, where it's, you're going to come into my world and listen yeah. to what I have to say. And you, as he pointed Whoa. out, you lean forward to yeah. find out what he is actually getting at. Terry Funk is working for ECW when this movie's going on. So maybe that was more like the mid-90s, 95, 96, when they did their first ever pay-per-view. And they were a burgeoning outfit, but they weren't the big time the way that they never really got to be the big time, I guess. For him to work for them, and they probably paid him pretty well for what they could, but it still wouldn't have been the kind of money he used to earn. So in some ways, and it's not the same as what we see Jake doing in the middle of, what, Nebraska? But what Terry Funk is doing is similar to that versus the Mick Foley stuff, which is all WWF when they were at their fucking peak, and he was making tens of thousands of dollars for big shows, probably. Probably. One big show, WrestleMania, guys can earn, I think, over $100,000. Top stars can earn over a million. Oh, yeah. So Terry Funk was in some way settling, but still, I can't give it up because I, A, love it, B, I need the money still, and C, not just love it, but I'm addicted to it. Absolutely. And, like, and Jake the Snake's addicted to everything. Everything. <laughs> including the fame. The endorphin rush of getting up in front of a crowd and the adulation has got to be something that's hard to give up. The only reason I do this podcast is for the rabid fan base and the adulation I receive when from When you this. walk in the dogs say hi to you. That's yeah. Funny. Well, that's what I mean by rabid fan base. Hopefully not literally rabid in their case, but yeah. In Terry's case... It's sad because he's got a family, adult daughters, he's got a wife. Announces his retirement at one of the daughter's wedding. Yeah, which is an interesting choice to make. I love you, honey. This is your day. And oh, by the way, let's talk about me, everybody. I'm going to retire. And of course, like you said, he Wasn't even true, as it turned out. It wasn't even true. I'm going to steal the limelight from my daughter. His visit to the doctor is a real heart-rending thing for me. In and of itself, it's almost comical. The back and forth he has with the doctor looking at the x-rays on his knees and the one knee, the doctor says, well, you know, at this point, if you don't get it fixed, you can walk in it, but you're just going to have to live with pain for the rest of your life. This other knee, for all intents and purposes, just doesn't exist anymore. You shouldn't be able to walk. You should be crippled. You should just be in debilitating pain all the time. And Terry just looks at him like, uh-huh. Can I have a good quality of life? So if I do nothing with this knee, will I have a good quality of life for the rest of my And the doctor's like, no, you idiot. You need surgery right now. It's the Randy the Ram from the wrestler flashbacks, right? Where he's talking to the doctor and the doctor's like, you continue to wrestle, you will die. It's not a question of, oh, I had a heart attack. I'm going to rehabilitate myself and I'll be back in the ring. It's like, you will die, Randy. It was a similar vibe to Terry. Granted, you're not talking necessarily death, but still, you could cripple yourself for life conceivably, right? The bigger comparison, I would say, is Jake the Snake because that's what apparently Darren Aronofsky got from this movie. I guess he liked it, but also he was inspired to make another movie, which... Francois Truffaut said is the best thing you could do for a movie as a critic, I suppose, or as a person watching it. Best response, make another movie. 
Yeah. Aronofsky made one of our favorite movies we've ever covered, and it probably will remain that for years to come, The Wrestler, based on the Jake the Snake scenes in particular. So you say Terry Funk is similar to Randy Ram, and he is in some ways with the physical stuff. Yeah, exactly. But Jake the Snake with the lifestyle stuff, and also physical. Jake isn't as banged up as Foley and Funk are, but apparently he got addicted to painkillers, like so many wrestlers do, because of the guitar shot he took from the Honky Tonk Man in 87 or 88, and oh, then he had to... Well, they used what they call gimmicked guitars, and so he'd hit people over the head with it, but it wouldn't actually hurt you. But for whatever reason, it didn't work, or it was not one of the gimmicked guitars, so a real guitar hit this guy in the head. Not the biggest brute athlete to begin with, like a Brock Lesnar. Jake the Snake, way more impressive than me, probably way more impressive to you, especially in his peak physically, but still, for a wrestler, was not in good shape, as, of course, Foley and Funk aren't either, by wrestler standards, and that didn't help him. So this leads to my nutshell, then. We've been talking about it for 15 or 20 minutes. Funk and Foley can barely walk, and Jake Roberts is lucky to be alive. Yep, seems fake to me. <laughs> yeah. And I've talked about this in other podcasts, certainly the other two wrestling movies we've covered, Ready to Rumble <clears throat> and The Wrestler, when people will say, it's fake. You're not imagining that you're watching this. They're actually doing it. They're just not trying to hurt each other. But then look at what some of the stuff that Funk and Foley do. Oh, yeah. The old scenes we see, the Hell in the Cell before this movie, the Royal Rumble, which is a big part of this movie, Jake the Snake not so much maybe, but some of the things that all these wrestlers have done in their career... It takes a fucking toll. Bret Hart would say it should be similar to what a football player goes through. And he said that when he didn't know about concussions. Mm. But just in the sense of you have a Sunday game, you wake up on Monday, you feel sore, not the greatest, but you can work the next day. You can go to practices and you can have a life is what he was trying to get at. And a lot of the wrestlers don't. And that's why they go to painkillers or booze and they become addicted. Well, the way everyone does because your body gets to need it. But then, like we said, in any given Sunday where Dennis Quaid says, you have to up the doses, I'm a football player. Right. Can you imagine when you're in even more pain than he probably was as these yeah. guys? And these guys work probably at least 200 days a year, maybe more. There was a time when they would work more like 300 days a year, also traveling. Yeah, that's crazy. And then football players in comparison work, and I'm not trying to slag what they do, but 16 regular season games. <laughs> you and then pusses. You're pussies. Maybe they might work 20 games a year, of course, practices. Full respect to them. But wrestlers have to go back out like baseball players. The very next day after they've done Hell in the Cell, for example. The night of Hell in the Cell, Foley came back out and worked part of a program in the main event. He got physical again, and he had a separated shoulder and a concussion and all these other things. Yeah. What in the fuck? But this is their job. So when people call this fake, I've always objected to that. And this movie is a great example of, are you kidding me? How could you say, okay, well, they're acting to a degree. One of the greatest disservices that Vince McMahon ever did to the air quote sport for a long time the denial that any of this was pre-planned or scripted or anything, right? That, decades. Yeah, decades of it. And that led to, of course, the accusations of, well, it's fake. And to the extent that things are pre-planned, it is fake because the outcome is predetermined. But like you said, the things that these men and women put their bodies through is not fake. And there are real physical consequences to it. And I think we all understand that now, whether you're a true wrestling fan or not. We know the punishment that these guys take. The comparison to football players by Bret Hart is... A good one, and it's an accurate one. I think the problem is maybe he, like you said, didn't know about concussions, but maybe didn't appreciate exactly what the football players' bodies were experiencing either okay. at the same time because you listen to some of the interviews with pro players, and they'll tell you, you come out of a Sunday or Monday night or Thursday night, whenever you're playing, in the morning, you can't even get out of bed half the time because your body is so broken. I've so. mentioned North Dallas 40 a few times to you, a movie yeah. that we probably should have watched last year. We can cover it some other time, I guess. But it would have been the 40-year anniversary. The way that movie starts, Nick Nolte can't get out of He eventually does, but he has a hell of a time getting out of bed. Well, and he's not even it. that old in that movie. You do whatever you got to do to get out of bed and to get your body moving and to get into preparation for this week's game. And mm -hmm. it's 
cumulative over now time. try doing that nearly every day of the week incidentally your point about the frequency with which these wrestlers put their body through the pain is well taken but there's also a reason why football players have i think the median span of time that somebody's going to have their career is like four years right and some of that is just you're not that good so you burn out a league but a lot of it is the physical punishment you take too and that's where you fall into the spiral and the difference between football players pro football players anyway, and wrestlers, is they tend to have a lot more resources at their disposal while they're playing. They also have health insurance. They have health insurance. And yes, you spend a lot of time on the road, but you're spending a lot of time on the road in a quasi-supervised environment, right? You're in a team environment. And as much as we all know that football players have a reputation of not necessarily having the firmest ethical boundaries or maybe getting up to stuff they shouldn't get up to. Locker room talk. We don't do that. Fuck off. Yes, you do. I don't know if football players would say that necessarily. A lot of professional athletes would say that. Didn't some of them come out when Trump made that point during the campaign four years ago and they said, my stars and garters, I've never said grab them by the pussy. Yeah, you probably have. Probably far worse. But even aside from locker room banter, criminal charges that come out of it, right? Infidelity is a thing that we hear about in this movie. And you can appreciate when you are, for all intents and purposes, as a professional wrestler, an independent contractor, right? And to your point about not having health insurance, we all know that Vince McMahon ain't providing his wrestlers with anything. Scandal. This should it be should so be. scandalized. John Oliver did a piece on this, I think it was last year. Yeah, I saw Leading that. to it's last year's one. WrestleMania, I believe. I'm a little shocked that in 2020, they haven't attempted to bind together as a union of sorts, if not an actual union. You know the excuse for this? Because Jim Ross does a podcast now. He's okay. the play-by-play guy, yeah. legendary. He was going through Bell's palsy through some of this movie so you don't really hear or see him that much like you maybe would have although he's being interviewed at one point but then the movie was shot over many years so yeah briefly here and there you see him but not a lot but he said this on podcasts and i think that bruce pritchard has echoed this too other people have you can't get wrestlers to agree on where to go to lunch so how are you going to get them to agree on a union but that's almost like an excuse though too yeah it sounds like a that's his explanation line. for why they haven't made it work but why isn't this being taken care of by someone else it's like having an agent yeah. You want to sign with this team. You want this proviso on the contract, blah, blah, blah. But that's the agent's job. It's not your job as the wrestler. Somebody needs to represent you to do that. We know from this movie that at the time of its filming in the late 90s, they cite the success of the WWF, now WWE, but whatever, WWF. WWE, Over a billion dollars. Over a billion dollars, more than three of the New York sports franchises. That's not the case anymore. Not even close. But the WWE is still a multi-billion dollar entity. And even though last stats I saw indicate that their in-person attendance and their pay-per-view numbers are in decline, they're opening up to other markets, so the revenues are still there. So, okay, it's still a successful enterprise. How much longer that will continue to be the case, given the way... They live on nostalgia, too. They live on nostalgia, absolutely. But for all of Vince's flaws as a man and as a CEO of this company, and they are many... He has a definite business savvy about him. They were fairly leading edge when it came to on-demand streaming services. Like I said, they were expanding now into the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, places like that. Making so, a killing doing it, too. Making a killing. He's smart about his business. And so presumably he'll be able to keep this afloat as long as he continues to helm the thing anyway. I don't know about his kids and their savvy, but there will be a continuing enterprise for a while, I would think. And if that's the case, the kind of atmosphere he seems to engender in this, this is from what you see in this movie particularly, but other behind-the-sces interviews as well, is a you-versus-them mentality. So, Absolutely. So as much as... He's I, always the underdog, even when he's not the underdog. But also his wrestlers. Ryan, I promise you, you will get the title shot this year. And then he'll turn to the other person, you will get the title shot this year. It's very disingenuous. Now right? fight. It's like, very back like G.I. Joes, yeah. Yeah, and so it's easy for us to say, well, they need to band together to form a union. And I would like to think that somebody as charismatic and popular as Stone Cold or a Dwayne Johnson or even a Triple H when they were at the height of their popularity. 
would gather a bunch of guys together and say, we don't need to agree on a lot, but we need you to just have a unified front on these very common issues like health insurance, whatever. But then if they lead the charge behind the scenes and Vince comes up to him and says, listen, Dwayne, Stone Cold, whatever. If you do this, you're out. Hell, you can be the head man of their union, whatever, but you will never wrestle again for the WWF. That's a million dollar paycheck you're essentially tearing up right Millions. at that point. And they don't know for sure the wrestlers will back them up. Exactly. I can understand Ross's point on that front, but it's also a point that only exists, I think, because of the way Vince has historically run yeah. this company. And you'd like to see him in a gesture of goodwill because the guy is now a billionaire, too. That's the has other been thing. for a long time. The success of the company is one thing. He's personally successful himself. It's not like setting aside a couple million dollars to set up some sort of medical fund would cripple him or the company. Hell no. It would just be a nice public relations gesture, if nothing else. One of the great scenes in this movie, well, great's debatable, but one of the more memorable scenes would be early on when you see the contrasting opinions. The wrestlers like Al Snow will say, I was promised all kinds of things and nothing yes. happened. And the excuse, again, from a Jim Ross or a Bruce Pritchard in their modern podcast will be, no, they were told there'd be opportunities. Maybe, but I bet those guys weren't in the room. And I can understand Vince McMahon being savvy enough and smart enough to make it sound like this is what's going to happen. So the contrasting scenes between the behind-the-scenes people, the executives effectively, who do have health care and all kinds of other benefits apparently, yes, and the rest was like an Al Snow. And you think, who's right here? This side's glowing. This side's being at least critical, if not being mad about it. That independent promoter, Roland Alexander, same thing, where he's talking about, yeah, these guys get paid, I take care of my guys. And he yeah. seems to care about the two that we see, Mike Modest and Tony Jones. But then other wrestlers are talking about how, I don't know, I'm not sure I'm going to get paid tonight by Roland Alexander. Yeah. And all wrestling promoters seem to be hucksters in some kind of way. As far as the coverage and that kind of thing with these guys, John Oliver did the better piece for this, so we should definitely suggest people watch that. I think it's probably still on YouTube. But what frustrates me about the WWF and Vince McMahon, WWE, as much as anything else, is when I think about how football players, baseball players, whatever, you name it, maybe it's because of the union, mm -hmm. but they don't pay their own way. So Mike Trout makes, I think, $30 million a year. A lot of guys make a ton of money compared to any human being. They make so much money a year. I'm not begrudging them that. But they make all that money, and the team pays for the transportation, and their uniform, and their hotel, and their food. I think these guys, despite all that money, even get a per diem. Yeah. They don't have to worry about any of that shit. WWF wrestlers, at least, and this is probably even more true for the independent promotions, and when WCW and ECW were still in business, as they were as close to a competitor as WWF, and now I guess it's AEW. Anyway, right. they will get certain transportation paid for, but they have to get their own rental car. They have to get their own hotel. They have to take care of all these things, their own costume, which I've heard differing opinions about that. But again, Bruce Pritchard talks about how Randy Savage, all those great robes he wore, he bought them himself. Hey, if I but could have a great is, robe, I'd buy it too, Ryan. But this is part of the job he's doing for these guys, and that doesn't yeah. make sense to me because Mike Trout doesn't pay for his own uniform. So where is this? You guys want to be top of the line, and they're always saying, we're not sports. Okay, well, same thing. Let's go into entertainment. Vince says, we make movies. Okay, so you're a movie producer. Let's just go with that notion. Does Jack Nicholson buy the Joker outfit he wore in Batman many years ago? No. Did he pay for his own hotel room, pay for his own food and that kind of stuff? No. So if you think you're entertainment or your sports, sports entertainment, you don't even do the things that the people in those businesses do. And you have no good reason for it. And the independent contractor thing is a crock of shit, too, because as CM Punk pointed out, you can't work for them like a plumber and then go to another whole different job because you're an independent contractor. You can't work for them and the next day go work for the competitor. It's in your yeah. contract. But then you're not an independent contractor. Yeah, but I think you cited exactly the reasons why this is the case, though. They don't have the bargaining power individually to demand, unless you're a superstar, in which case I'm sure when you get to a certain amount of popularity, 
Vince will give you some perks, right? Definitely. Unquestionably. But for the vast majority of them, they don't have that bargaining power. The line in Beyond the Mat, where Vince compares himself to a movie producer, he actually talks about the star system of Hollywood as it used to be. And he likes to think of himself as a star maker, right? And I think that preceded actually the whole thing with puke. He's gonna puke. He's the guy that can make himself vomit on demand. You mentioned earlier that Vince must have a way to convince people that whatever he's telling them is the truth. He's a great salesman. He must be. Because can you imagine if you're this poor guy whose talent is that he can make himself vomit on command? Failed football player, incidentally. Well, he wasn't failed, but he didn't play anymore. He didn't play anymore. And you somehow buy into the fact that your hook and path to stardom is going to be puking on command into a bucket. And being called puke, Being called puke? Come on. That's a gimmick where you're a sad sideshow for one or two shows and then... You're tossed aside. Well, Puke didn't last long. He became Draws. His name is Darren Drozdov, so you just became Draws. Right. By going in, he thought he was going to be Puke. The star system, of course, Hollywood's history has been far from sterling when it comes to the way they treated some of their would-be stars or their actual stars. You piss off the wrong producer at, at that time, and all of a sudden you're blackballed, and you ain't getting any jobs anymore. So it's almost like listening to Donald Trump compare... Parasite, why can't we hearken back to the times of truly great movies like Gone with the Wind, which admittedly is a much celebrated movie through history, but also is reminiscent of a very different time in the world, a very racist time. And a movie time. that celebrates it. Yeah. So, so 1939 and 18, whatever that movie is set, both of those are not a good time for most people in for America. For most people. Unless it, they look like you and me. Or Vince McMahon or Donald or Trump. Or you're right? super rich. Yeah. So Vince McMahon pictures himself as a Hollywood producer of the silver screen era, like the 1930s, 1940s, where you are an all-powerful demigod and all these peons dance to your tune. And sure, you make them popular celebrities, but ultimately, you're still the puppet master, right? And I think that's how he sees himself and that's what he wants out of this company. And he's managed to do it. He didn't want to promote this movie because he wasn't going to get money from it, apparently. But he also says that they said they're an independent production. It was just an industry kind of thing. It wasn't supposed to be a theatrical release movie. Imagine Entertainment, Ron Howard's company, released this movie. So Ron Howard had some kind of stake in it. So obviously it was a big screen thing. And again, a writer for Eddie Murphy, a big name writer at that point in Hollywood, is the guy who's making it. So they must have sharked him a little bit. Or maybe he's lying. Who knows? Yeah, But they didn't promote this movie. And I don't know that. Well, they did promote The Wrestler, actually, because Mickey Rourke was part of WrestleMania probably April when they did WrestleMania that year. And the wrestler came out the previous December or something like that. And so they were linking those two together. So he didn't not promote that. I guess he did promote it in a way. But he didn't want to promote this movie because of that, supposedly. I bet he also didn't want to because if he had seen or heard about the Jake the Snake stuff, he's going to say, they're going to blame me for this. Terry Funk, maybe not so much. And Mick was still part of the WWF in a big way. But I bet that Jake stuff was a huge reason why because we already said Foley's more the star of this movie. They're fairly evenly divided, I guess. But Jake the Snake's story is so fucking dark. Good news for those who maybe don't know this. People probably do. But he's recovered finally. There is a documentary out there called The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. He really hit hard times. You think it's bad in this movie? It got even worse for him. And he was nearly dead. But Diamond Dallas Page, a wrestler from WCW who knew him well, Jake the Snake helped him out many years ago. Page never forgot it. Has this thing called DDP yoga, which is more than just mm-hmm. doing yoga. It's about eating right and it's a mental attitude and all this other stuff. Page basically made Jake do it. And he relapsed a few times, but the resurrection of Jake the Snake is about how he finally got over that hump. And I think after what's been maybe five years, probably longer actually, I think he's stayed clean all this time. And he actually, in that movie, you see it, is helping out Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, who is maybe even worse off than Jake was. And at the very end, you see the three of them grappling in the ring and they're all better off, Jake and Scott Hall, that is. But anyway, back to Beyond the Mat specifically. The scenes with his daughter... Those are rough. 
Yeah. He's done crack before, and Blaustein says he goes up to do crack after this. He barely even spends time with his daughter the very first time they see each other. It's only a matter of minutes, and then they had to sit down. I think it's supposed to be the next day. I didn't expect to see that when I saw this movie. A friend of mine actually basically bullied his little strong, but I hadn't seen the movie yet, and it was out on DVD, and I was talking about renting it or something. He said, how can you not just buy that movie? Because we were big wrestling fans back then. We never missed pay-per-views back in, well, yeah, we were still watching them in 2000 and so on. The movie, by the way, was released in theaters in March of 2000. But the ironic thing is that premiere was the previous year, which often happens. A premiere happens the year before or a screen for the Oscars, what have you. But then it's actual box offices in the next year. So I guess this movie's technically 2000, but when you look at the box office mojo numbers, it's 1999. So it was 181st at the box office, not surprisingly, but it did pretty well for a documentary. It made about four times the amount of money. So my friend basically bullied me into buying this movie. I don't think I really knew that much about what it was about. I probably had seen the ads, so you know that you've got McFoley, who was a god to me. Okay, I love McFoley for all kinds of reasons. And I think, well, I know, one of the reasons is because of the hell in the cell. And I, in some ways, hate myself and absolutely feel guilty that it took that from a guy who's so smart and so funny and Mm -hmm. so human and such a nice person and a good person for me to finally really truly notice him. I had noticed him. He'd been in the company for a couple years before the hell in the cell. But then I see this match and think, holy shit, I can't even watch that match now, though. I cringe. I can't see him be thrown off the cell for one thing, but I really can't see him go yeah. through that cell because if he had done that move properly and gone higher, like he said in his books, he probably would have broken his neck or even died right there. And to think that we would have witnessed that, part of the reason this man did this is because of people like me that didn't buy into him until he nearly fucking killed himself. Or it was accidental. He didn't mean for it to happen. Granted, oh, yeah, but... granted. But how did Owen Hart die? Wasn't it a, a, fall. a similar stunt? He was rappelling down which was something they were doing in wrestling all the time at that point. Sting was doing it regularly. Oh, it was, it was rappelling down from the ceiling. And but it... he was supposed to come down slowly, and Sting would do it fast. They're lucky it never happened. I remember back. Sting doing But the guy that. for Owen Hart just fucked up. That's no, what it came down to, and Owen Hart died quickly, at least. He didn't have to suffer very long. But... Yeah. I think one of the things with Mick Foley in particular, and I can understand the guilt of watching some of these matches after the fact because we know all too well now what that's probably doing to this guy's body, and I don't think any wrestler in history has been more self-aware of who he is and what his image is than Mick Foley, nor what it would take for somebody like him to reach the heights of stardom that he did. He's not six foot four, 300 pounds of pure muscle, right? Like he's a relatively average looking guy in comparison to most of the people that step into the wrestling ring. He is your height though. He's about six, four. No, he's a big guy, but he's an average looking man. When you compare him to these behemoths in the ring, he's pretty ugly. Yeah, and I'll he, say it. He's not an attractive dude. As my surrogate, he's pretty ugly. <laughs> but he was willing to put himself through these things for very specific reasons, and that's why I can look on his matches as gruesome as they are, and as much as I would probably never rewatch any of them either. I was never the wrestling fan that you were anyway, even though at this period of time I followed it somewhat. I'm mostly lapsed, by the way. I still follow yeah. through podcasts and watch stuff online here and there, but I never really watched the shows anymore. I can't remember the last time I saw a full Raw or a full pay-per-view. It's like a lot of football fans, as time goes by, you start to realize or become a little bit more self-aware about what they're putting themselves through, too. The liberal in us is part of this, too. It is, definitely. But if he's willing to stand up in front of a mic, as he does in this movie, and say, listen, I'm going to put my body through hell now because in two years' time I want to retire forever and spend that time with my family, I can look at him and say, okay, some of the stuff he did unquestionably went beyond the limits that he thought it would. But like I said, fewer people have been more aware of why he was doing what he was doing and being okay with it, too. And come to peace with his retirement because most of them can't. That's why they come back. Obviously, Terry Funk couldn't. And these guys were longtime friends. Terry Funk is Foley's idol. And his idol could not give it up. I would never feel sad for a man like Mick Foley 
as intelligent and well-spoken as he is, as much as I respect the man too, it's not just wrestling. It's every part of entertainment. If Mick Foley were to, say, have eschewed wrestling entirely, we see through this movie that he wanted this basically since he was a kid. But let's say he didn't. Let's say he wanted to do stand-up comedy or he wanted to get into some kind of acting instead. Looking the way he looked, you think he would have been successful? Not a star. No, not a star, right? He could have been Philip Seymour Hoffman. Assuming There's a he, guy who he was, was never going to be a great if he was an absolute... Well, one of the most talented actors we've ever seen. Exactly. And that's the only reason he could make it when he looks the way he does or did because unfortunately he's dead. It sucks that because he wasn't just a stunning Adonis of a man that he had to go to the extremes he went to reach some sort of stardom. But it's also the sad reality of our celebrity culture in basically every facet. If you're yeah. not a beautiful person, you're going to have to push yourself to weird extremes in order to get famous. Well, right? look at the match we see so much in this movie. His family's there watching. Again, weird, but yes. Should've, yeah. Well, his logic is you take him to Disneyland first and you hear them talking about that behind the scenes because The Rock's just hanging with them. One of the great things about this movie is you see these guys planning up their match. This is why yes. people call it fake. They're playing the match out. It's scripted. They're working with each other. They're not trying to hurt each other most of the time. Granted, it doesn't make it fake. It makes it scripted. It makes it pre-planned. But they're talking about going to Disneyland, and his idea was, okay... Are you talking about like a working vacation situation where you bring them with you, you go to work, you do your job, and then we're going to go to Disneyland, guys? Where did this Royal Rumble take place? Do you remember? Anaheim, I think it was. So the idea was, let's make a several-day event out of this, but let's do the fun stuff first, and then we'll do the wrestling. When he realizes later, oh, we should have done the fun stuff afterwards. Maybe leave Colette and the kids at the hotel room, and if she wants to watch the pay-per-view, you pay for that, whatever, but... Because even the five chair shots was a lot. That was a lot. The thing that would have worked so well with this match, I'm a little bit surprised they didn't do this although again the rock wasn't supposed to hit him i think it was 11 times or 12 times in the first place right. you see the one sequence where he hits him one yeah two three probably that cadence maybe even faster than what i just did that I can you imagine faster, taking yeah. three chair shots in maybe five seconds i can't imagine taking one chair shot. well of course yeah yeah but a lot of these guys were doing it regularly and i guess they got out of alive most of them anyway if a man the size of the rock were to just approach me with anything less than a gleaming smile on his face i would just cower and go into my <laughs> even like, now. my fake dead position well, like a more, bear were approaching me he's more impressive now than he even was then oh i know part of that's on foley and i think he's owned up to that he should have sold them more but he wouldn't go down because he couldn't somehow the way his hands were tied behind his back when he's handcuffed oh yeah he got cuffed in that and then too, they right? probably yeah. didn't want to incorporate colette and the kids necessarily but if that was something they could have done, if she was willing to do that, because the idea was, let's make The Rock vicious, so when he goes up against Stone Cold at WrestleMania in a few months, he'll be yeah. ready for him because he was the slick guy then, the guy who could deliver a promo. Obviously, he's imposing, but a lot of wrestlers look basically like him, and this about was, that same size. So i got to yeah. make him tough, like he did for Triple H next year, Foley did. And this was the I Quit match. The I Quit match. They the could Rumble. only effectively tap out. There was no... They have to say, I quit, yeah. I quit, I quit, which he recorded earlier, and that's what happened, so they screwed him over with that. He said it earlier in the pay-per-view where it's, Rock, I'm going to make you say, I quit, I quit. And that's when you hear him record. So anyway, hit him with the chair once, get the microphone, milk it, so A, the guy can recover a little bit, and also you'd work the crowd. I'm not going to quit, Rock. Do something else. Hit him again maybe two, three minutes later, or even a minute later, and then maybe work the family to this. Drag him out in front of his family. Yeah. This son of a bitch isn't going to quit, is he? I'm going to make him. And then, anyway, you're asking a lot of a call out. You could have an actor, I guess, play his wife. But because of the way it worked out, it ended up being too many. And even five was too many, I guess. But they could have milked it so much more and then yeah. have it be that he finally just passes out and then they screw him over. But I, it's also in mixed book where he says if Colette had begged The Rock to stop doing it, she would have been the biggest heel in the company because the fans would have been booing because it would have felt like they got gypped. I guess. I really like the idea that he's quitting for his family 
and not just because he's been beaten into submission by Rock. But he does do that many years later. Yeah, which is a, think... a sensible plot line. No, but not him. with his family. There was some young woman who's not with them anymore, but she was a star with them at the time. I think her name is Molina. I think it was Ric Flair was involved in this somehow. I think it was Flair. Anyway, whoever it was he was working against was going to hurt Molina and Foley really liked her character-wise and I think also behind the scenes really liked her. So in the midst of their fight and I'll hurt this girl if you don't stop Foley. Okay, fine. I quit. Grabs the mic and does really? that. That was so, the worst Ric Flair I've ever heard, by the way. You're supposed to give it a little... Woo! <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm armchair quarterback in this match Twenty years, more than 20 years later, but... That's the way that probably should have gone. And then, of course, you see the repercussions. And Foley's talked about in his book how he's mad at The Rock for not checking on him afterwards. We do see Draws, though. So Draws is in the, not quite the beginning, but near yeah. the beginning of the movie. And Very then early, towards yeah. the end where it's, you are the fucking man. Foley wrote in his book about how much that meant to him then and how much he thinks about the fact that this guy, only a few months later, was paralyzed. And even now, Draws has never walked. Apparently, he has a little bit more feeling in his limbs than he did before, but he still never walked after all this time. Accident yeah. in the ring. Just the kind of thing that could happen to anybody. That is also a moment that, to me, was very reminiscent of scenes in The Wrestler, right? Where you get Randy the Ram doing some of these independent shows and some of these young guys coming up to him and just saying, Randy, you're the man. You inspired me kind of stuff, right? And I understand that a lot of this was pulled from Jake the Snake for The Wrestler, but it felt like Aronofsky was just pulling from elements of the movie generally and sort of making an amalgam of all three guys and their experiences into one wrestler who was somewhere between the tragedy of Jake the Snake, I guess closer to the tragedy of Jake the Snake than you would ever get to the success of Mick Foley, right, in terms of survival and having a family. But at the end of it all, at least you get Randy going out on his terms, which is maybe a quasi-success. Randy probably dies Yeah, going but, on his terms. But he actually connects with a human being, which is a little bit of a win in his books, right, when Marissa Tomei's character shows up for him. But anyway, we've kind of touched on the tragedy of Jake the Snake periodically, and we've talked about specific moments. It is astounding to me the impact that not just the sport had on him, but the life he led. He does a great job of explaining how... If you have existing demons, it'll just put you in a place where you can tailspin as a result. You touched on Jake's horrible relationship with his daughter at this point. They've made reconciled. Sense, yeah. His father raped a 13-year-old girl. A 13-year-old girl when his father was dating that girl's mother. So Jake the Snake's mother was 13 when she gave birth to him. And Jake's sister, I believe, was kidnapped by an ex and murdered, and that person went to jail. And but never found the body. Yeah, he refused, after getting out of jail, to give away the whereabouts of the remains. The man's personal life was just a series of tragedies. So you Divorced can... as well he was. Yeah. And he and... talks about how hard it is to go back and just have a normal sexual relationship with your wife after you've been on the road cheating, but also with multiple Escalating, prostitutes. yeah. Like... Either prostitutes or ring rats. Groupies. Puck bunnies, we... but for wrestlers, ring yeah. rats. Oh. Well, well, groupies God. would be the most common phrase, but they call them ring rats in wrestling. But multiple people a lot of times, and he says using toys and all that kind of stuff, and then go home and be normal. It's like any other thing. You talked about the, hey, Doc, I'm a football player. you got to give me yeah. more morphine. Let me right? do cocaine on the road and go home and just drink coffee or pop or yeah. maybe have booze. Not the same and not enough. But it's an escalating thing. You want more. You want more. You want more. Just like you want more adulation in the ring or in anything you do. You hook up with one person, and that's exciting at first, but it ceases to get that endorphin rush. So now it's two people. Now it's three people. And he says now it's two a day or three a day, and then it's with toys or multiple people at a time. And all of a sudden, yeah, you can't go home to a normal relationship And the anymore. drugs become crack. Not just yeah. coke, which a lot of wrestlers did, and maybe still do, but crack, man, that is some serious-ass shit. 
And I'm sure that was just the tip of the iceberg too, right? Well, he got worse between this movie being made and then the resurrection of Jake the Snake. I think he was actually homeless at one point. I think he was. So the depiction of the sport, I think it's pretty good for a quote-unquote fake sport. In fact, I think it's great for what wrestling really is. It is a documentary, so it should be. (laughs) How's the depiction of the sport that this is a documentary of? Terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's as bad as Raider Rumble. That was one of the worst we've seen for depiction because they show stuff these guys really should have died from. It's just way too much. Yeah, it's a little over the top, obviously. As for the can you score factor, well, like I said before, we see some beautiful people in this, but it's not a movie that's inspiring of that kind of thing. We saw He Got Game last. That was a very inspirational sexual movie, but this is not at all. Ray Allen, sexy man. No, of course. This movie is so depressing in so many ways. Even the good stuff with Foley. He is the most fun character. He is. And then you hear that song twice. Come on, baby, let the good times roll. And on the commentary, Blaustein talks about how they got out of Jake where he's saying he wants to kill himself and I don't want to live anymore, all those kinds of things. And the next scene is when you lead into what ends up being the Royal Rumble massacre. But at that point, Foley's walking with his gear into a hotel room and it's, come on, baby, let the good times roll. Because Blaustein literally needed for himself of the movie to have good times of what we saw with Jake the Snake. We mentioned earlier the mission statement of this movie was, who are these guys and why do they do what they do? On the understanding that the director is a lifelong wrestling fan. They're just like you and me, only really different. Yeah, exactly. You often get a sense in documentaries, but I think in a lot of these movies generally, you get a sense of what the director's slant is, what their opinion is of the thing they're depicting. Modern documentaries are really bad for this. Well, not always oh, bad yeah. for this, but they really do this now. There's no obligation on the part of a documentarian or filmmaker generally to claim that they're purely objective. I don't think you have to pretend to be. If you're trying to espouse a point of view, that's fine. It's up to the consumer of that product to understand that fact. In this case, though, I was honestly left at the end of it all wondering whether this experience left the director more in love with the sport Uh, or did it take him away from it? You do see some of the positives that can come out of being involved in it, even though he wasn't a major part of it. You see The Rock, and he's clearly successful in the business. A little bit of Stone Cold. See Jesse the Body, who became a politician. Exactly. Governor of Minnesota. Brief interview with him. We stunned the world when he wins Mm -hmm. the governorship. And of course, Mick is the highlight of all that. He's a successful guy with the family and he's done well. But you also see so much negativity that comes out of it. I think Blaustein probably feels negative about it. I would imagine so too. I think the movie's terrific, but I also yeah. feel that way. Makes sense? I guess maybe you're supposed to. I'm not really sure. It plays into I don't your think you can go watch this kind of stuff. Belief, I yeah, think. I think you can watch this stuff and not feel at least oogie about it in the end. Because yeah. if you're already a fan, you're feeling like, oh my God, I didn't know this was happening to these guys like this. And not just and from if the you weren't a fan to begin though. with, you're going to watch and say, what the fuck are these people doing to yes. each other? The physical aspect of it, the trauma they sustain is one thing, but the way that they're portrayed as being chewed up and spit out if they're no longer yep. any use to the sport is also equally depressing. Bret Hart has said before that when you're done, they should take you behind the barn and put a bullet in your brain, Yeah, which is rough. But then... I sort of understand to a degree why you get pushed aside. I think I said this in another podcast we've done before. With our softball team, if somebody got badly hurt, I'm not going to say, okay, well, who's up next? But if somebody had, I don't know, pulled groin or something like that and had to sit on the bench, put ice on it, I can't sit there and fawn over them for two innings or three innings. Got to get back to it. Yeah, we did talk about this recently, but the agents, that's what it was yeah. on Heat Got Game. So I get that to a degree why Vince McMahon would not dwell on even a big star being hurt because I got another show to do. And these guys do so many shows in the given week and certainly in a given year. But even when they don't get hurt but are no longer maybe as popular as they once were, guys yeah. like Coco Beware. Or Dennis Stamp, the guy who thinks he should be wrestling oh, yeah. on Terry Funk's that last guy was show. Very sad. He's so whiny. He's very whiny. But yeah, once they're no longer functionally useful to Vince or they're not bringing in the viewer numbers, 
cut you loose. You're nothing to me anymore. It's and, a frustrating business. It's one reason why I stopped watching. Plus, I was going to move in with Bev before we got married, and I thought, I don't think I want to know I'm a fan of this. I was a little bit ashamed. Yeah. And after I gave up watching it when we moved in together, I didn't miss it, so I just never bothered watching again. I do have to say, though, I'm always a little uncomfortable every time I tweak my knee or something. Because you know I've got not the greatest knees. I'm going to cut you? No, that you pull out the shotgun and start polishing it <laughs> and say, Chris, can I see you behind the bench? And I'm like, ah, I'm fine. And then you put it back away again. It's a very terrifying and yet successful motivational technique you have on that softball. You know, line. I guess actually the better comparison would be, and I'm not a boss where I work, you are in charge of people. But if somebody were to call in sick, say, for something, and we have jobs where people are very replaceable, unlike if Mick Foley can't make a pay-per-view, that's tough. That's hard to replace. Yeah. But if somebody calls in sick, and let's say there's something really wrong with them, but nothing you can really do about it. Maybe their father died, and that's why they have to be off work. You got to find somebody to replace them in that spot, and it's a matter of I feel bad for blank, but I got to take care of blank. I That's get it. life too. It's still an industry that has to keep operating. There's spokes on wheels, but Vince McMahon's yeah. also a savage, ruthless guy. And there are times I really hate him. And in this movie, yeah. he's not in it that much, but he does come across. Like he comes across as a asshole. bit of a brute. Yeah. yeah. So what would you give this movie? I would say at least seven and a half, maybe even eight out of ten. I'd like an eight out of ten for okay, this too. Fair. I, yeah, like I said, I don't think it's entirely impartial. It seems to have a little bit of an axe to grind with Vince in particular and some of the practices in the business, but I don't think unfairly. He doesn't help his own cause by being an asshole with that. He's got a he's got a puke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He looked like an idiot, Vince. And I always wonder why in the holy hell does Vince have his pants? So high. Why? <laughs> he's it's an all... old man before he was an old man. In this movie. He's not old in this movie, yeah. Oh, he's a big dude, right? Yeah. He's essentially a bodybuilder. Incredible shape. And he's wearing the pleated 90s pants almost up to his pecs. It's mm. incredible Maybe it was watch. supposed to be funny when he was doing that? I don't know. Because he was so. playing a villain, and he didn't mind showing ass, unlike his daughter now. Yeah, maybe. Okay, well, if you want to see this movie, it's still free on YouTube as of March 8th, which is when we record this. And it's a decent copy of it, so maybe it won't be free by the time we post this podcast. But if you want to see it and you haven't already, take a look. Maybe it's there. WrestleMania, by the way, is in Tampa on April 5th. So far, coronavirus might knock that out like it's locked out other things. Maybe the Olympics won't happen this year, too, for all we know. But so far, WrestleMania is on April 5th, and that's why we're doing this now, because yeah. we're going to want to get ahead of that. You think Vince McMahon would ever cancel a live event? He's one of the ones who wouldn't. No, absolutely not. He might hold on as long as he possibly can. He could push it back, but who knows how long coronavirus is going to last. It's going to be a while. We're just starting to get it in this just part of the world. Just starting to get it, yeah. And by the time this actually goes up, we might look really dated and think, just starting to get it, guys. 2,000 people died last night, for all we know. God, I hope not. Okay, well, Beyond the Mat, tough documentary, but still a good one. It is entertaining, and it's got some really wonderful stuff on it, but it's also rough. In two weeks, it will be April 2nd, so let's put on our checkered pants and talk about golf. It's been a long time since we have. I think it's been about a year. And there's probably no more famous movie about three woods, putters, and sand traps than not Happy Gilmore, not Tin Cup. But Caddyshack, which I've already recorded on the PVR. A movie almost as dark and depressing as Beyond the Mat and dealing with equally important social issues. I was never a huge fan of this movie, so we'll see when I see it. I think a third time if I like it more. There are certain movies that age well and certain movies that don't age well. And this one, I wonder. Especially when it comes to things like Me Too. Yeah, exactly. That's in two weeks, April 2nd. So we're on Twitter. He is at Scoring at Movies. I am at MovieFiend51. We're on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts under Top 100 Project. Yeah. Well over 300 episodes in total. Chris and I have now so done much 47 with this episode, and Bev and I have done hundreds. And, of course, the website for all these episodes is top100project.com. So take your easy, dudes. Forever! And I should be bleeding on the microphone when I do this, I guess, yeah. too. I'm going to use my bucket now, if that's Forever. all right. Forever! <laughs> that Mick, or the Terry Funk, Terry Funk, when he does that. Forever! It's the mission statement of this podcast. Forever! <laughs> It'll never end. <laughs> I know that you will. <laughs>